Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. I have two guests today. One is one of the most influential names in publishing, agent to authors including Lem Sisse and Matt Haig, and founder of the literary agency Convalon Walsh. Her newest venture is the imprint and production company Cheerio. And my other guest is the Booker Prize-winning author of Vernon God Little. Since his debut in 2003, he's become known for his satirical and darkly comedic style. His latest work is Big Snake, Little Snake, an exploration of risk and gambling. DBC Pierre and Claire Conville, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you. Pierre, let's begin with you and this very interesting book. It really just sparks so many thoughts in so many directions. And I wonder if you could just begin by explaining the concept of vivid maths and cascades. The idea behind this is that across the last century, we've increasingly lived in a world where all our knowledge is secondhand, the information world. And of course, that's really taken off now. That's a a vertical curve. And The premise of the book is that actually if you stop and sit and think for a moment, the mathematics of life is very different than the statistics which we're given. For instance, we have a one in three chance of getting cancer. We have a one in two chance of becoming mentally ill and all these different odds that we hear all the time and by which we run our lives. If you add them up, of course, that's much more than 100% odds and we should all be dead. And from that starting point then... If you look around at life, the stuff that we love, the things that make our lives sparkle, are coincidences. And even things which we take as paranormal events, like completely impossible things, connections that happen, are actually, we can say they're mathematical and not, and not paranormal, but they happen much more frequently than we think odds will allow. And it means that odds do allow them, And it means that we're thinking the wrong way about our odds in life. And so the book is an exploration of that specifically. Vivid Maths is a coincidence-rich environment or a coincidence-rich time. And we all experience them routinely enough that really we're losing the magic of life by imagining that, uh, that it's not an incredibly sparkling place. And you also go into the whole concept that these things start a long time ago and and you talk about cascades. Yes. The thing is, we calculate our odds. For instance, we have, let's say, a 1 in 230 chance of being bitten by a snake during our lifetime. Now, the thing is, that number is given to us and we accept it completely devoid of its context. So my chances of being bitten by a snake will vary if I move from this chair to that chair across the table or if I move to a different street or a different country. And so we're dealing with completely out-of-context figures. And the notion of a cascade is that really, if you think the odds of us inhabiting a planet in the universe are octillions to one or maybe even... Uh, you know, it may be a singular odd. We may be the only ones. And I think that uh, all odds, all our calculation of odds, have to begin with the incredibly slim chance that a universe can exist and that within the universe can exist a planet with life on it and that within all the life forms, which I think there are now about 9 million 
life forms on Earth. Within them, there can be human beings, and that within that one in nine million chance, we can exist as human beings. That's where our odds begin then, whether or not we're going to meet a snake and be bitten by it. <laughs> and so a cascade of, to think that really our odds begin with the incredibly improbable event that we're even born on a planet currently. Well, I want to go back to being born, and I think we'll start with you, Claire, because you have been a voracious reader from from really very, very early on. Tell us about your upbringing, because it was, a again, a, some awful circumstances that kind of made that happen, a huge tragedy in your early life. Yes, uh, I was very lucky. I was taught to read. I had a nanny when I was a child, and I was taught to read at a very young age, and I was a precocious reader, and in those days, you were allowed to watch telly for one hour a week. You know, there were no screens. There was, and I was effectively an only child. So I just read and read and read and read a lot. And then, uh, very tragically, my mother died when I was eight years old. And I think as a kind of pathological response to her death and a way, a method of escape, I began to read pathologically and ferociously day in, day out. So sometimes I would read maybe five or six books a day. And I always remember my aunt and uncle who lived in Lancashire were very surprised when I went to stay with them and they said, where would you like to go and what would you like to do? And I said, I'd like to visit the Brontes Parsonage in Haworth. And I sort of piped up age nine. And of course found it incredibly compelling and interesting. But I suppose that's an unusual request <laughs> from a nine-year-old child. And in particular, everyone was rather horrified that I put Pride of Place above my bed, the picture of the sedan where poor Emily Bronte died, although in retrospect there may be, have been a very good reason for that. <laughs> uh, Pierre, for you, your reading, or certainly the spark for this particular book, came from early reading of Papillon. Well, it kind of did, yes. The uh, Papillon is a story, a true story, about a man who is sent to Devil's Island as a prisoner, and he spends the whole time trying to escape and escaping and being recaptured and then trying to escape again, and, of course, in an incredibly exotic setting. And uh, during particularly hard times in my life, I just read that book over and over and over again, and it just gave me, it gave me a, a sense of uh, stick with it. It gave me a sense of hope that, that I could eventually get out, if you like, and after that, I was so, so impressed by the setting that the first thing I did when I was free was go to Trinidad in the West Indies, which had been one of his port of calls. He'd arrived on some little boat and, and been rescued there. And uh, almost magically, I was drawn to go there and do that myself. And I was kind of rescued in a similar way. So the path had etched itself into my uh, into my future history. Mm. Uh, Claire, for you then, when did this love of books actually become a job? Well, uh, when I was in my early 20s, I applied for a job and I went to see a publisher and um, my application was met with utter disdain. And this man said to me, I don't think you'll ever, ever get a job in publishing. It's filled with really clever people and you've got nothing to recommend you. So I suggest you go and work as a waitress, <laughs> uh, which I did, sobbing all the way. And then very luckily, I was by then working in the theatre. And very luckily, we put on a production of Megan Mogg, which is a children's book illustrated by Jan Piankowski. And the Puffin team arrived and they invited me to 
in order to apply for a job. And I applied and got it. And then really my love of reading and my working life came together. And I really have been blessed with the most incredible working life as a result, actually. You set up Convalon Walsh, a literary agency. Tell us about that. Yes, so I set up Convalon Walsh with Patrick Walsh in the year 2000. And um, I think we felt there was room for a kind of bustling, buzzy, slightly alternative left-field agency. And it grew very quickly, but really one of the key successes of the agency and where we went from being kind of kind of pirates to you know respected members of the publishing community was with the publication of DPC's book Van Gogh which I represented which then went on to win the Booker Prize and that really changed our fortunes in the most remarkable way so tell us about that coming together so <laughs> uh, this uh, the book come, comes out in 2000 or well, wins the Booker in 2003 but leading up to that there's you sitting there thinking I'm going to write this book I need an agent. A perfect example of cascade thinking. Thinking on the street would go, here's an author, written a great book. Obviously, it's such a good book that it's agented and published. And as a result of that, he meets an agent and meets publishers. And there goes the story. No. Claire's beginning, the early tragedy of her life, my beginning, reading the things that made me read and the things that made me write are the beginning or actually they're part of the story we take up that story from our chance of even existing on earth and our trajectories meet until I write the book she opens an agency and in a very very human connection we coincided when I wrote that book I sent it to 12 different agents I heard back from 6 of them who said thank you but no thank you Six I still haven't heard from. I'm still waiting for them to say somebody's already done this. And really, after about a month of not hearing, I thought, well, you know, nothing's going to happen. I'll take one last shot. I sent it to Claire's agency. And you didn't know her at this time? I, no, I didn't know any agent editor. I didn't know another writer. This was completely from the dark. And when Claire had read it, literally I woke up to two voicemails and, and some emails. We met that same day, and the thing is there was a human spark, something in the way that she had written the advertisement for the agency, if you like, and something in the way I'd written this book brought our minds together, and the thing exploded, and really from day one took off in a straight line. But the thing is that we both, in a certain way, would absolutely destined to meet and this could not have happened for either of us without that intersection and it follows a very long and, and beautiful line it's an extraordinary story i mean you're so right and here it is and here is this it's the story book. of our life yeah the yeah. connections the intersections would, yeah, of our life i would say though that i had when i first met pierre which was 20 years ago i had sort of two young sons kind of on the verge of teenagerhood and pierre does that which i advise every author not to do, which is create his own jacket. And it was a pair of trainers on a cross. And I just remember picking up this manuscript and thinking, this is a boy about a book in trouble. And my, my kids were really quite naughty. And I just had an instant connection with it because it was already part of my life. I knew what it was going to be about. And we didn't use the picture on the cover, but in fact, that was the connectivity. I just kind of got it, you know. Mm. <laughs> 
You didn't leave it, though, with just Convol and Welsh. I mean, your career has expanded in so many different directions. Tell me what happened next. Well, I have written one book, which I'm proud to say I've achieved, and I think you very kindly interviewed me about that book some years ago now. Uh, I was very pleased to start the Curious Arts Festival with Paddy Keogh, and that was something we did together for nearly 10 years and was like a kind of giant riotous uh, fun party in the middle of the New Forest, where I think we did manage to achieve great things. You know, we had some amazing writers came, we had music, we had artists, we had poets, we, you know, tried to encourage first-time writers alongside some really big names. And it was done in a very sort of old-fashioned country house setting, looking out to the sea. It was very bucolic, fun. I hope there was a generosity of spirit about it. But very sadly, it came to a conclusion, and I think the pandemic means we'll probably never do that again. But under lockdown, with my great friend and also curator and writer, Harriet Viner, we came up with the idea of Cheerio. So Cheerio is a publishing imprint and a production company. We are partially funded through the philanthropic arm of the estate of Francis Bacon, and our aim is to work and encourage writers, filmmakers, poets, artists, and really bring unusual and interesting work into the mainstream, either in book or film form. And that's unusual, having the whole film aspect to it. Yes, I mean, Harriet and I kind of slightly don't quite know how we got where we have got. But Harriet in particular, she's a filmmaker and she has a particular interest in film and... There were just projects we wanted to do. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a lover of books, but I also think that whether you tell this, a story in a book form or in film form or as a TV box set or as a game or as an opera, doesn't really matter. We're just compelled to tell those stories. So some of the stories we wanted to tell are much more, uh, much more appropriate to film than they are to, to the covers of a book. So we just, just forged ahead and did it. And I know from Convol and Walsh that... There's nothing like making it up as you go along, but there's a kind of freedom and just being able to concentrate on sort of what you want to do and doing it well rather than worrying about the algorithms mm. of, you know, corporate publishing where everything is about, you know, if you read this, you might like to read this or, you know, it very much what Pierre's book is about. So we're so Curie is very much in contrast to that. Someone said to me the other day, you know, you know, who do you take advice from about what you're going to publish? And we just went, nobody, just us, we just do it. You're purveyors of big ideas. (laughs) We're purveyors of big ideas, and we don't really... We work hard to find an audience, but we want to be where it's happening before it's happening, if you know what I mean. And there's, of course, a a crossover (coughs) with film, because, Pierre, you... This book starts with you actually going to Trinidad to make a film. Yeah, well, it's one of the things I was going to do. I was doing... uh, many projects in Trinidad, but I had to pick one as the banner for this book, just because otherwise it's a book about all the other things I was doing there. Mm. Because but it is a sort I of I was memoir. a filmmaker at the time, mm. and uh, it is kind of a... It's a memoir. This started out at the beginning of the pandemic. God bless you, Claire. Mm-hmm. She came to me literally just before things got locked down and said, how about something on a theme of gambling? And I started out thinking, okay, a collection of gambling stories. Now, I'm not a big gambler, but I have been. I had a season of gambling when I learned how it all kind of works. And so in the course of that period, it grew into something much bigger than uh, than a book about gambling. And 
the only experience I could really draw from was my, my own experiences. Mm. I mean, there are so many kind of other sort of random elements. The parrot, for instance, <laughs> that, that keeps making an appearance. Yeah, the parrot. The well, that's, you know, outrageous fortune, the poor parrot. I won't give the story away, but there was one particular short film we had to make with a parrot. Of course, they say never work with children or animals. So there was also a child in the thing as well. So we made both mistakes on the one day. <laughs> Uh, But the result is is this wonderful book. Uh, Claire, when you go to an author with an idea, have you any idea what's then going to come back to you? No, and I think that's really important. I mean, Harriet and I, whatever we commission or support, we want the artist, and I use that, that word in a broad term, to feel creatively free about what they want to do. Mm. entirely free and it's not we don't think it's our job to sort of step in and sort of shape or manipulate the situation I mean obviously our books go through an editorial process and in fact it was rather interesting to move from my agency role to an editing role with Pierre on Big Snake Little Snake because we work very closely together on it and certainly sometimes on the films we're making we will if we feel something's really going off course we'll make a gentle intervention but it's for, you know we want other people to make their mistakes as they see fit to make them. Yeah, absolutely. Now this is not your first book though for Cheerio. I no, uh, our first book is Bacon in Moscow by James Birch, which is a very amusing uh, account of how, as a young curator, he attempted to take a major re- a retrospective of Francis Bacon's work to Moscow in the age of Glasnost and Perestroika, and in a period of time where no Western culture was available to Russia or Eastern Europe, and where they hadn't seen the work of a West European artist since 1923. So it's a major undertaking which succeeded and didn't succeed, but you'll have to read the book <laughs> to find out. It's a fantastic a... yarn, it really is, and, and back in focus uh, yeah, as the new Soviet Union unfolds before us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but it is also... That you know, there is there's a love story. There's a honey trap. There's sort of KGB stuff, spies. Spy there's kind of all sorts of shenanigans with the sort of embassy and the British Council. It's it's a very unusual tale, and it all started really with James's love of um, the dust jackets for Ian Fleming's James Bond books, which were painted, drawn and painted by a great friend of his parents called Dickie Chopping. And Dickie Chopping lived with Dennis Worth Miller and they sometimes lived with Francis Bacon too. So that's where the story starts. So the theme of the spies and is it right up in the very beginning of the book. There's a cascade yeah, running another cascade, from yeah. Francis Bacon all the way through these yeah. works and, yeah. and to this table. And we'll see where it runs through you, Georgina, after you leave. Well, you know what? I've marked, as you can see from my from my copy, I've marked so many passages in the book that I kind of wanted to come back to, but I, I, I would just be basically reading the whole thing aloud if we went through it all. But I wonder for, for you if there's a, a, an absolute key moment in this book. What, what was the bit for you that you perhaps most enjoyed writing or recalling? Well, the memories, when are they really here or there? They fit the setting. I think there was a beautiful moment, and I, I had this chat with someone this week, and, of course, across the pandemic and the lockdown, unfortunately, many of us are grieving as a result of, of the last two years, and things have been very difficult. But there's another lucky camp who were forced to stop and shut down and sit and think and 
have had to come and rebuild their lives from scratch and found a new and different space to do that. And in the course of writing this, as I say, originally it was a series of gambling stories. We were going to write it very quickly and publish it quickly. As the pandemic dragged on, we had more time. And during that time, I had time to think. And I think the most beautiful thing for me was the notion of vivid maths arising. Just the fact that I had the time and space to go, here is what is happening. Because I've always been enchanted by coincidence-rich environments. I believe they exist. It can be mathematical and not paranormal, so I'm not being unscientific, but there are times when coincidences gang up on each other and we all live through them. And to be able to give that a name and to chase that idea a little bit further was the real gift of this book back to me and has set me on a, uh, has kind of tilted the cascade of my life, the event cascade of my life in a, a different direction because it gave form to the space of the pandemic, if you like, mm. and, uh, and I'm emerging from it now with a new idea, a new vision of how steps might unfold into the future. I want to take us back to technology because, Claire, you were talking about as a child, of course, you only got, you know, an hour of television a week. And, and Pierre, I think we first met talking about Breakfast with the Borgers, which was your thriller, where, of course, all technology is removed. And that book has really stayed with me. And then you go on to Meanwhile in, in Dopamine City, yeah. which is, of course, a, a satire on technology. And then you reference in this book, of course, that we have access to so much information because of technology, yeah. really. Yeah. But I think, I mean, it, when you, for instance, this is b kind of before there was a, a great deal of, of tech, most of this book. But I think it must influence writers hugely because you've got to lose your mobile phone if you <laughs> at the beginning of the book, Claire, if you, you know, unless it's fully incorporated in the plot. How do you deal with bringing technology in if you're not writing specifically about tech? Do you mean in fiction? Or in, you... in, in fiction. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, I, I'm not a novelist, so I, I feel about these things differently, but I suppose that... It depends what city... I don't know. I've always imagined that writers have kind of characters and ideas, kind of the sitting inside them that make themselves felt. And I remember Philip Pullman describing in the Northern Lights Trinity how he thought about all these characters. He had Lyra and he had, you know, Mrs Coulter and all this thing. And suddenly this kind of strange American balloon is turned up and he was just sort of... He was just sitting there suddenly in a chair, sort of chewing on a, a cigar... And I, I, I suppose I think it's it's what's there, isn't it? It's just it's what's there sitting in your unconscious, bubbling away. Maybe its ideas are presenting themselves. I mean, I think for so many writers, ninety percent of the work is done in their unconscious. But but it? I I wonder what because I mean, say you take a thriller or something, nobody gets lost anymore. You 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 can call them, you can text them. You can... That's why I think thriller plots have got so ridiculous because yeah. because it gets ever more pro problematic to come up with a sort of massive concept and and actually make it work because yes of course they, they've got their mobile phones or you know they can knock on somebody's door or they can hail down a cab but terrible things still happen to people terrible murders still happen in, in ghastly circumstances so mm -hmm. maybe that's a that's a case of another kind of co set of coincidences yeah, yeah. darker set of coincidences 
How do you deal with that advancement of well, tech? Well, in practical terms, I mean, first of all, the clear message is anyone who said that humanity was only floundering due to a lack of information, it wasn't that. Okay, uh, we're currently doomed by the way information is uh, handled and manipulated. And it's a huge problem. In terms of the, the practical key to technology is simply it's now dangerous to to specify the mechanics of the tech in a book simply because by the time the book is published it will be dated. So although we take for granted that we can find where we're going and we can talk to people and even see them on screens and stuff but uh, it's you know now we cannot mention really we shouldn't even use words like mobile and cell phone and stuff and you'll notice in my last couple of books I've simply said screen mm. because otherwise in 10 years, the new technology will completely date that. Remember Vernon, my first book, he used payphones on the street mm. to do his business. And I can still get away with that because he was he, one of those poor kids who didn't have a mobile uh, at the time. But it's an example, you know, if, uh, if I wrote a thing today with a, a smartphone, in two years that's going to be obsolete. And so we have to remember that the curve is now vertical and God knows, in a very short space of time, people will appear in three dimensions as holograms uh, when we phone them. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but that yeah. offers, in a way, its own rich kind of opportunities, doesn't it, fiction-wise? Yeah, new ideas, of course, <laughs> yeah. And if you write about that now happening, you know, within five years of the book being published, something else will happen where, you know, we're all, we've all returned to lizards and... <laughs> But in a way, you know, I think that I think if, weirdly, I think J.K. Rowling did that in a very old-fashioned way in Harry Potter. I mean, I think a lot of kind of the fun stuff and the magic and things like that was actually probably drawing on, you know, technological. Yeah, that's the other way to do it. You exactly, remove it to a world where you create the entire world, and that's how things are. Mm. Just very quickly, what's next for both of you, Claire? Well, that's a very good question. I think to. Uh, continue to look after my wonderful authors as a literary agent but also really we have a very big launch next week for Cheerio and for Big Snake Little Snake at the Tristan Hall Gallery in Fitzroy Square and it's a pop-up exhibition which will include three works by Francis Bacon and 28 photographs by John Deacon and um, vitrines by artists such as Jeremy Della and Bella Freud and that is open to the public on Wednesday and Thursday. And DBC Pierre will also be doing an in-conversation with David Keenan there on Wednesday night. So do come along. And for you? Uh, for me is to uh, appear at that gallery on Wednesday night. <laughs> <laughs> and in terms of your writing, do you know where it's going next? Uh, I'm forming ideas, yeah. It will, have to be, it will have to be novelistic and will have to be uh, the best thing yet that, that I can possibly do, so... Beyond that, who knows? Well, here's to the wonderful circumstances that have brought us all together over the years, and particularly today. Thank you both so much for, for coming in. Big Snake, Little Snake by DBC Pierre is published by Cheerio, and it's out now. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hall and Lillian Fawcett, and you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or app, from SoundCloud, MixCloud or iTunes. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>